Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning, church. Good morning, Rich. <laughs> I hope this morning you are already turned to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be going through verses 1 through 7. Our title of our sermon today is Light of Our First Love. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned your love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And so this morning, we begin going through the letters, right, to the churches, the seven churches of Asia Minor, the letters from the risen Christ to the church. And so in these two chapters, chapters two and three, which we will, we will go over in the next uh, seven weeks to get through, what we're going to find is a literary shift, right? As we go through Revelation, it, it's been so symbolic. And in these letters, there's going to be symbolism. Oh, beautiful, beautiful, hopeful uh, symbolism. But the literary style is going to shift to more of that of a letter. It'll sound like almost any other letter that Paul or Peter wrote. This is a letter, a practical letter to the churches, these letters are to seven real, not symbolic churches. Starting with the church at Ephesus, it's interesting that, uh, if we can put the map on the board, these churches went along a male route, right? And so this makes sense. John was on, on Patmos, and so the closest church to him would be Ephesus, and the arrangement of all these churches is in the perfect arrangement. If you were the mailman uh, during this time, this is the route you would take. And so I really think that solidifies the argument that these are real churches, right? This is, this is exactly the way you would get this information to these churches going in a counterclockwise motion. Now, another cool thing about these letters, one of many cool things about these letters, especially as someone who has to preach through them, there is a natural outline in every single one of these letters that's near identical. You have the recipient church. Like, who's it written to? A character of Christ, something about Christ, a commendation of something they did well, 
A criticism, something they are, they are not doing well. A correction, here's how you do well. And a challenge, if you do well, this is what will happen. And generally, all the seven churches, with a couple of little variations, will follow this outline. So nice. And so the first church addressed in Revelation is the church of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus is also the, probably the one church out of all the seven churches in Revelation that you would say, I know that church. Ephesus, I've heard of that one. Yes, you should. Absolutely, you should know about Ephesus. The church with Ephesus was planted by Paul in the book of Acts and some amazing stories in the book of Acts. Ephesus received a letter from Paul that we call Ephesians. Several of Paul's letters in the Bible were written from Ephesus. Not only did Paul preach there, Timothy preached there. Not only did Timothy preach there, a tradition holds that most likely John the Apostle preached there, bringing with him Mary, the mother of Jesus. Which means, although I love being a pastor, I would hate to follow that lineup. But that just shows you this church, like the way it was planted, what's been going on there before this point. Now, Ephesus is, is an important city. It is a significant metropolis. A bunch of highways go through Ephesus. They have a seaport, and they are a religious destination. If you're going to go somewhere uh, back in this era, and you just want to go on a family trip, uh, probably not a good idea to go to Ephesus on a family trip, um, but Ephesus was a destination. It is probably the most important out of the cities of these letters, and it makes sense that we would start here. If you're going to Ephesus, you were going to see the temple of Diana. It was the place of worship to the fertility goddess that the Romans called Diana and the Greeks called Artemis. The temple was known for having a bunch of women around who were priests and who were prostitutes. That was just part of that religion. The temple itself is considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a happening place. It was a place that you wanted to go, especially if you were uh, immoral. If you were immoral, this is your, your destination. It was so immoral, even according to Roman standards, already low Roman standards, even Romans were like, no, Ephesus, you're taking it too far. This is where you went to go too far in immorality and for low standards. And now we turn our attention to the highest standard, Christ, and the character of Christ that we see in verse 1b. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And it's interesting, as we go through these letters in Revelation, the character of Christ that's brought up at the beginning of the letter, of the letter will circle back around. You will find out why this character of Christ is mentioned. It will play into why Jesus has the authority to address what is happening in the church. We will see this even this morning. And the character of Christ that we see this morning is he is the one that holds the stars and walks among the churches. Jesus is present among his churches. He is present and he is watching us and he is watching over us. 
He sees not only what we do, but we will see this morning he looks deep within us. He's looking at our heart. Not just if we're doing the right things. He's looking into us. How many of us would treat our church attendance and participation differently if we knew Jesus was here? How would it change us knowing Jesus was going to be front row or back row, but he was going to be in, in, in this room? Would you attend more? Would you be more attentive? Be more reactive, more careful of what we're doing, every aspect of what we're doing? And yet Jesus is here. If you believe this is true, this is the character of Christ we're looking at, that Jesus is present and he cares and he's holding us and he's walking among us. Which means, like even this morning, sometimes Jesus is going to correct us. Why? Is he looking to find something that we're doing wrong? No. He's trying to help us. He's telling us there's something wrong with the relationship that we have. You need to know about this. If you want to end up with me forever, right, this isn't a hand slap from Jesus that you're doing something wrong. This is Jesus holding out his hand and saying, you got to take my hand. you got to trust me on this. I know what I'm talking about. I see through you. I see in you. I know what's happening. Deal with this thing that I am talking to you about. He is present. And he sees the good and he sees the bad. So what good does he see in Ephesus? Well, if he read ahead, a lot of things. Man, Ephesus has a lot of good things going for it, absolutely. And so what is their commendation? What is Jesus saying? Ephesus, yes, continue doing this, Ephesus. There are two things that the risen Christ is pleased with. And the one is Christ is pleased with their doctrine, their theology, top-notch theology. They knew Jesus, and therefore they knew how to worship Jesus. They know what Jesus loves, what Jesus hates. This is what informed their actions as a church, we will see. Their theology was so good, and they moved within that theology, what was true. Their correct theology produced Christ-pleasing actions. And the first we find in 2b, that it says of the Ephesians, that they cannot bear with those who are evil. Cannot bear. The Ephesian church hated what Jesus hated. Evil. Now, it doesn't give us details, but it tells us there was evil present and they wouldn't, they wouldn't deal with it. Like, I'm sorry, they did deal with it. They, they didn't want it around them. They got rid of it. They would not bear it. If they came across evil, they got rid of it because it did not match what they knew to be true and they knew Jesus was present. And so they didn't want evil present. That's, that's good. In verse 2, part C, it says, You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. And so people were coming, false apostles, to lead them astray. People who were going to take advantage of this church. You know, they didn't have internets, they didn't have seminaries, and so people could just show up at your door and say, Hey, I'm an apostle, you're supposed to listen to me. Thus saith the Lord... They weren't having it. It says they tested them. And it doesn't say how they tested them. It was probably some sort of theological test, right? Apostle comes in. Tell me what you know about Jesus. Tell me how one is saved. 
Who were the Nephilim? That, that probably wasn't on there. <coughs> but they tested them, and through their testing, found out that they were heretical, and, and they didn't accept them, which Jesus is like, yes, you did. They, they, they came in, and you did not receive them. You rejected them. And the, your good theology brought this out, pointed out the fact that these were heretics, which is every reason why we as a church should have solid biblical theology, lest we believe lies, lest we believe people who come in and try to teach us something that isn't true about the Bible, something that isn't true about Jesus. If we don't have a good theology, we also run the risk of being okay with evil. We can't be okay with it. We can't turn the other direction. It says they hated it. Like, we have to hate it. We have to hate evil. If we believe Jesus is here, and I do because we already read that, we can't deal with any evil here. We have to operate with the understanding that Jesus is here. Which means we have to have a solid theology and operate out of it. They had one more practice that, that was born out of their, their good theology in verse 6. Yet this you have. This is a good thing you have. You, have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And so the church of Ephesus loves what Jesus loves, hates what Jesus hates, which is good. Hate sin. Hate sin. Love the church. Love the lost. But there's something else that Jesus hates that you guys probably didn't even know. The Nicolaitans. Right? Jesus hates them. It's the one thing we know about them. Right? Because the only other reference to the Nicolaitans in the, in the Bible is a couple verses now, uh, which we will talk about next week. And so why does he hate the Nicolaitans? Like, what's up with them? And so, again, there's no more biblical references to them other than Revelation but we do have some early church fathers and leaders who were very familiar with them. They were still dealing with them in their lifetime. So listen to what some of the early church fathers and leaders said. Irenaeus says, they led, they led lives of unrestrained indulgence. Clement of Alexandria said, they abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats, as if insulting the body, led a life of self-indulgence. I don't understand the goat's part, but it's not good. Don't be like a goat. Um, Tertullian mentions they aimed at destroying the happiness of sanctity by their lusts and luxury. Yes, totally sounds like something Jesus would hate. And so this morning, maybe we sigh in relief that we don't have to deal with the Nicolaitans. Oh, glad that, that, glad that was, when, you know, when this was written. It's not an issue for us today. Yet I bet this church, the Ephesians, would trade the Nicolaitans for everything we have to deal with today. Right? And so we have, we have to adapt this to, to our culture and, and the issues that we have. And I don't think it, it takes very much to land at the fact that because we're talking about self-indulgence and, and sexual sin, that this would be like woke culture. Right? And I'm not afraid to say that, because even in this book, he calls out the Nicolaitans. You may say, is he actually calling out people? People are being called out. If you don't tell people what they need to avoid by name, then, then yes, avoid bad people. But also, woke culture, you know, especially as we talk about church, is not something that we can tolerate. 
And I'm not saying don't love them. They need love as much as anybody, if not more than anybody. They need to know what love, instead of saying love is love, they need to be loved. They have no idea what love is, and they need to be loved. But we don't do that by changing what church is, and we don't change the standards of church, which is what's being talked about here with the Nicolaitans. We don't invite the culture that's around us into our church to change it because Jesus is here and he's judging us by it. And he's saying the Nicolaitans are part of this culture that they're around. And he's saying, I'm glad you did not accept this culture into the church. This is a good thing. This is Jesus saying, this is the good thing. And so we must take it seriously and not adapt our church to our culture. Now, the second way the Ephesian church is pleasing is that Christ is pleased with their dedication, with their endurance. Verse 2a, I know your patient endurance. Then in verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. Now, as we have talked about, and we'll talk about all through the book of Revelation. The application of the book of Revelation is patient endurance. No matter what's happening, how do you respond as a Christian? Patient endurance. We will see later on in this text, in this sermon, that that even conquering, the idea of conquering, how do you conquer? Patient endurance. Jesus mentions theirs twice. Like, that's really good, Ephesus. Like, that's not a high five. That's like a high 10. You guys are doing great with your patient endurance, despite the fact that Ephesus was was a place where they were getting abused, like financial, economically being crushed, physical violence, slander. Ephesus was the place of Diana, right? Not the God of the Bible. People were highly annoyed by this church. They endured, which is a good thing, but it is not everything. You can endure incorrectly. That is the scary part, the the, the scary twist, if you will, of this text, is that you can endure incorrectly. By all outward appearances, this church looked healthy. Jesus said, it looks healthy. Thumbs up from Jesus. Yet Ephesus is also a church criticized, which we will see in verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Not you have lost. Not I have left. Ephesus, you have abandoned Ephesus, you have abandoned me. You have abandoned the love you had at first. And so what we find here in Ephesus is a church that that doesn't have a head problem. It's a church that has a heart problem. Not a head problem, but a heart problem. And this should sober us all. This should sober us up right now. The fact you can have great theology and zealous works, do everything right, thumbs up and high fives from Jesus, from everything that we do and the way we think correctly, but we could be wrong inside. We can abandon our love for Jesus in the process 
of living an awesome for Jesus life. Yes, he wants our obedience, but he wants our hearts. Right? We follow Jesus out of love, but he wants our hearts, not just our obedience. He doesn't just want the actions. He wants our affections. It is possible to know about Jesus without loving Jesus. Now, a genuine love for Jesus will produce everything that took place, that has been taking place in Ephesus up to this point. Right? Genuine love for Jesus produces all these great things. But what this text says is you can have all these great things and still not have Jesus. And so the question this morning is, do we have Jesus? Like, I think I got the theology end covered. Right? We're going verse by verse through the Bible. I know what we believe as a church. I think I know what most of you believe, but do you have Jesus? Not do you have good theology. Do you have Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Do you show up because you love Jesus? Is every part of your life and decision you make based on the fact you love Jesus? Everything we do in life, every decision we make, one thing over another is based on love. Even if it's a love for self, it's based on love. Do we love Jesus? And if you're convicted this morning, praise God. May we be convicted. It's the Holy Spirit trying to tell us something. Maybe we need to acquire love or reacquire love and get to work. So what does it look like? Let's say you're here this morning as someone who was probably present in this church and you say, that kind of, that, that, I feel convicted. That hits home. I don't know if I love Jesus as much as I loved him when I first came to him. I'm convicted. What do I do? How do you get back there? Is it too late? What does that look like? And so we find this in the church corrected. <clears throat> the church corrected. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. And so here's the antidote for the heart that has abandoned Jesus. The plan to get where they needed to and some of us this morning need to be. There's three parts to this plan. Remember, repent, and work. I really wish the last one was an R. There was no word that worked there. Remember, repent, and work. So remember. Do you remember what it was first like when you were born again? Do you remember what it was first like? However long ago that was. The fire and passion that you had. You probably annoyed everybody around you. Right? Praise God. You experienced the greatest love one can. It changed you. It rearranged your life. It reprioritized your life because it's the greatest love encounter and relationship that one can have. Do you remember how you used to read your Bible? Before we just read it every day and checked off the box, yes, I read today's reading. Do you remember when you used to open your Bible and hear the voice of God, the God of the universe, when you would kneel before it and open it up in amazement 
as you were presented with this hero, your personal savior, Jesus Christ, and your mind was blown and you just wanted to obey what it said and you were convicted over every word and you had fear and you had joy? That's probably not the way you read anymore. Do you remember that first love you had for Jesus? That zeal, that joy, that fire, diligence, passion, discipline. You would surrender everything for him. You would do anything for him. We must remember. That is the commandment from Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Jesus telling us, be nostalgic. Remember. Remember when we met? Jesus wants us to remember, especially those of us who are married this morning. What was it like when we met our spouse? What was it like on our wedding day? Even if it was hectic, it was still awesome. It was still love and it was still excitement. Right? Even though it was stressful, all those things were there. You even patiently endured everyone around you telling you you could do better. You were all in. So let me encourage you. Just repeat what this says. Remember. Take the time, not just this morning, the rest of the day, the week, months, whatever it takes. Let this be a season of remembering the love you had at first. It is important. Jesus says this is where you start. Remember. Start by remembering. And I would encourage you to even write it down. Write it down. Better yet, write it down and tell people. Right? Remind your spouse. Tell your kids and your grandkids why we show up. Why, why do we come Sunday morning and I have to get up early and, and listen to this funny-looking and funny-sounding guy? Why are we doing this? Tell them why you're here. Tell them how you ended up here, how excited you were. You need to stir that up again this morning. As for me... <laughs> I went all in when I first encountered Jesus Christ. I love my Bible so much. I, I just read through it every single day. I had my church elders tell me to slow down. When I, when I was calling them every day, hey, I just read this verse. What does this mean? How does this correlate to this verse? They told me to slow down. It's like, it's not a race. It is for me. I'm all in. I can't run to Jesus fast enough. Why are you telling me to slow down? The first church I went to was very unhealthy. They said, if you don't stop loving the Bible as much as you do, you're going to be a Pharisee. That's how they encouraged me. I'm not joking. Gianna was there. That, that, that's the encouragement I got from my church, and, and praise God that I didn't run from the faith immediately. I volunteered for everything at church. A prayer closet. I'm not going to explain that. We had a prayer closet, 24-hour prayer closet, a men's group, a youth group, um, drama team, Christmas tree lot. I volunteered for all of them. There wasn't anything. Like, there was nothing I wouldn't do for Christ church. I was completely changed. If I wasn't at church or work, I was at home listening to Christian CDs that I had bought from Columbia House. 
on my way to the Christian bookstore to buy another book by Sproul or Pink or Spurgeon, I would put on all of my WWJD bracelets. I had every color. It was goofy, and I regret none of it. Jesus has never stopped loving us passionately. Jesus' love for us has never wavered, was never lost, was never abandoned. He feels that same way about us the first time we encountered him, which is the way he loved us when he went to the cross for us. He was always completely all in for us. And even the, this correction, this hand slap that he's giving is out of love, right? Like, guys, remember, remember how much I love you. Remember how much you love me. Remember, he is worth loving like no one else. And he notices the good things we do. And they're good. But he wants our heart. He doesn't just want the motions. He wants the emotions as well. That's what it says here. Not just the obedience. He wants your heart. He wants your burning affection for him. And so what do you do once you remember? You repent. Repent. It says a couple times here, repent. Repent of those things that have caused you to lose sight of that first love you had for Jesus. Repent of those things that are in your life, devouring your time when you should be praying or reading your Bible or or having devotions with your kids. Repent of the good things in this life you have substituted for the great things of eternal life. Again, take time. Write them down. Take inventory of your life. What are you doing every day? Does it affect your love for Jesus? Is it taking away from time that you have for Jesus? He notices. He cares. Now, it doesn't mention what the Ephesians needed to repent from other than their abandonment of their love. But Daniel Aiken, I like the way he described this call to repentance to the Ephesians. He says, in calling for the Ephesians to repent, Jesus reminds them that that labor is no substitute for love. Purity is no substitute for passion. And deeds are no substitute for devotion. Do not pat yourself on the back for doing good things for the wrong reason. Nothing is more satisfying than knowing, loving, and serving God. Nothing. Some of us haven't done that yet, though, so we don't know. The part, the warning to the Ephesians here, is don't miss the loving part. Because Jesus says that's the part he misses. Jesus misses our love for him. It's because he loves us. That's how much he loves us. He's telling he misses our love back to him. And so we must repent. And once we remember and we repent, then we must work. Verse 5. In verse 5, the church of Ephesus is told they need to do the works they did at first. What did they do? It doesn't say. 
doesn't say, so most commentators just say, we don't know. It just, it just doesn't say. But there is something they used to do and, and don't do anymore that is tied specifically to their love for Jesus. But I think we can deduct this. Everything so far has sounded great, but they're, they're missing something that is tied to love for Jesus. And I believe the answer is found in verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The consequence of not doing the works is they will no longer be a church. They will cease to be a church. Their lampstand will be taken from them. That's how serious this action based on their emotion, their love for Jesus is. Their theology is good. Their works are good. Their patient endurance is good. What is so bad that it would forfeit their lampstand? That it would just destroy the church? That Jesus, not destroy the church, Jesus would take the church from them, it says. Except a lack of light. I believe the issue here is evangelism. There's a couple of reasons for this. The first is that we have a history of Ephesus in the Bible. What are we told about Ephesus? This little Ephesian church that Paul planted turned the whole city upside down. There was riots, right? They wanted to kill people in the church. Their whole economy was destroyed, right? Paul's put in jail. Like everything in this city is being turned over by the preaching of the gospel. So we know it was highly evangelistic. Early on, even in, in the shadow of this giant temple of Diana, there was a light that was the church of Ephesus. I believe the reason we were told at the beginning of this letter, what is the characteristic of Jesus that is mentioned? Lampstands, the church. He's walking among his church and he holds and controls his church. He's the one who decides what a church is. Jesus decides what a church of Jesus is. And you will notice, I won't mention this every time, as the churches are addressed, one thing that Jesus never mentions as a qualification for being a church of Jesus is numbers, attendance. It doesn't say if you lose one more person, you're no longer a church. Never does that happen. And I believe, even though it doesn't say it outright, that we can infer from the history of Ephesus and the characteristic of Christ, which ties in, that Ephesus lost love for Jesus and in the process lost a love for the lost. That when their, the fire of their love went out, their gospel light went out, hence don't need a lampstand anymore. You guys don't want to be a light? Fine. When we look at churches and church numbers, we should not, when we think about what a church is, we can't look at numbers, right? We have to look at, are we a light? If there's two of us here who are a light, we have a church. They're about to lose their lampstand unless they remember, repent, and do the works they did at first. And so Jesus always gives us that repentance option right? Just, just, just get it right. Just, just fix it. 
so much grace. It sounds just like the prophets of old, where God is crying out to his people, this is what I see, this is what's good, this is what's bad, and he will spend decades pleading with his people, please change, if you don't, this is going to happen, you, you will go into captivity, and then generations later, what happens? You have people born in captivity. But then read the prophets very angrily, like, why did my parents and my grandparents not listen? Why am I born into captivity? And yet not all is hopeless. It doesn't end with, and I'm going to take your, your lampstand away. The alternative, there's an alternative and a contrast to this very serious consequence, and this is the challenge to the Ephesian church. Challenges in Revelation are one of my favorite parts because it's the promise part. If you do this, if you make these changes, this is what will be the result, and they are amazing. And we find it here in verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Man. So the promise here is to the one who conquers. And so naturally, like, what does it mean to conquer? I know what the world says it means. It, it's military might. It's violence. It's, it's having a bigger stick, right? Yet conquering in the Christian faith has nothing to do with military might or power. It has nothing to do with how much force we have. Instead, it is the ability of us to endure evil forces. We will see it in Revelation, right? The beast, the harlot, all these things happening. What does Jesus tell us to do? Fight them? No, not once. It says endure. Endure. Tactically speaking, this is the most ridiculous thing to do. Worldly thinking, why would you do this? This is not a good strategy. It's a horrible strategy. And yet the Christian is called to patiently endure. Why is this an effective strategy? Because the conqueror Jesus has already proven that it is. He was faithful unto death. His conquering and defeat and evil and of death was made through sacrificial, faithful endurance. He did not fight back. He won without fighting back. He conquered without fighting. He took the worst the world could throw at him took our sin upon him, endured the wrath of God, even dying before he was raised three days later, victoriously conquering. He conquered through faith in God that his victory was assured even though his death was coming. His death was assured and his victory was assured. He trusted that death wasn't the end. It was the beginning as we saw in chapter 1, verse 5. He's the firstborn of the dead. That was the plan all along. How did Jesus conquer? Because he conquered death, right? He's the firstborn of, of the dead. And so we can conquer through faith in him. He's not saying, follow me blindly around this corner or blindly into a battle. He's already did it. Our victory, he's not asking us to be victorious. He says, I'm victorious. Follow me. The only way to conquer is not through military might or violence. It is by 
faith and love in Jesus. It is being a faithful witness to the gospel. It is patiently enduring and having faith that the thing we're enduring, the battle we are in, has already been won. That's how we can endure. We know how it ends. We are fighting a battle that he has already won. The Apostle Paul expresses this beautifully in Romans 8.37. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And now we can't end this morning without looking at this beautiful promise at the end of verse 7. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And this imagery, it, it just pulls at your heartstrings. It was difficult reading this verse all week because I almost wanted to cry. It's like I can taste that fruit. If you're like me, you wish. You wish you could have been in the Garden of Eden. What was it like to not have sin, to not have darkness, to, to walk and talk with God? I desire that. I'm sure you have too. Every time you start reading your Bible in a year, man, I wish I could be there. I wish just for a minute I could have experienced what that felt like. And what we see here is God is saying he feels the same way. He's planned it. Right? Through his victory, the whole reason he's gone through this whole process is to get you back to this point and back to that intimacy and communion. One day, all that was lost in Adam will be found and gained in Jesus Christ. Everything that was lost will be found and gained in Jesus Christ. We can have that hope. That is the truth and the hope that allows us to patiently endure. That there's this tree of fruit that it sounds like it's almost like a monthly subscription. Every month, the, the fruit is going to change and only the months never end. And we get to eat it in the presence of God. In Revelation 22.2, the end of Revelation, we see another picture of this tree, again mentioning it, wasn't just some, some off chance, you know, reference to something. No, it's going to be there at the end. 22.2. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, I think it's monthly, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. It just blows my mind to think about that, that. Just look at the nations of the world. They're going to be eating of this tree and just being healed, healed in the presence of God someday. And so, church, what do we want? What do we want this morning? As all the letters in Revelation are giving you two choices, two roads that you can take, what do we want? Do we want our lampstand taken? Do we want to not share the gospel and just have Jesus say, well, if you don't want to be a light, you don't have to be. I'll take your lampstand from you. Or do we want to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God 
I think I know the answer, which means we must remember. Church, we have to remember that love that we had for Jesus at first. We need to repent of all the things in our life getting in our way that stand between us and that tree or stand between us and sharing our faith with somebody else. And then we need to do the work. Share the gospel, spread the gospel all throughout Bakersfield and all through the earth and do this with patient endurance and faith knowing that we are in a battle that Jesus has already won. Let me pray. God, I want that fruit not just because I love food, Lord, but I long I long for that day with you, Lord, that's going to last forever. Where I get to be with that Jesus who I, I loved at first and who has never stopped loving me and loving us. I want that day where we can just talk and eat and sing forever and just be healed forever. hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.